1: The following program has words that were once banned in Boston, as they say. No, not Bucky Dent or Manhattan Clam Chowder. Much worse words than that. It's Friday, December 11th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I have an interesting relationship with the polls these days. Well, maybe not that interesting. It's the same relationship as I have with my Uncle Angelo. No relationship, because he's dead to me. And I say that because he's actually dead. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, he is dead, but polls to me are more like my Uncle Angelo when he was alive. Possibly generally true, but you can't trust him with real precision. Like, did he really help Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella fix a flat, or was he just listening to the game on the radio that day? So, take Georgia. Polls say it's close. How close? How accurate are the polls? Doesn't matter. They're going to vote. Then we'll know. But I was looking at a poll today that I thought was really fascinating because it goes exactly to the heart of one of my big takeaways, one of my big theses, Eh, you know, pretty fancy word, but I am college educated. Theses about the 2020 election and politics today in America. Here is the poll. Which specific elected official do you see as responsible for delays in the passage of additional coronavirus stimulus and aid? Nancy Pelosi got the most blame at 43%, followed by Mitch McConnell at 32%, and President Trump at 16%. No one and don't know got five and four. Who you were, Though, what demographic group greatly influenced who you blamed? 75% of Republicans blamed Nancy Pelosi. 15% of Democrats did. Democrat blame was 53% McConnell, 22% Trump in general. Guess what? Females blamed Pelosi a little more than they did either McConnell or Trump, but added together McConnell and Trump got 50% of the blame from females, only 39% of the blame from females. However, I was looking at the Donald Trump numbers specifically, because Donald Trump, he's not the answer to this question. He's done, I don't know if you know this, he's done a lot wrong. But the most responsible for delays in the passage of the coronavirus bill, it's not Trump, even if he provided no leadership, even if he was not helpful. You can't say he's the most to blame. So when you look at who blamed him the most, it's basically just correlative to the groups that dislike him the most. For instance, 13% of males blame Trump, but as I said, 19% of females because females don't like Trump. Under 45, Trump got 27% of the blame. Over 45, 10% of the blame. Why? Because younger people don't like Trump. Older people do. Black voters, 24% of the vote. black voters blamed Trump. White voters... 14%. But here's the fascinating thing that goes at my thesis. So I have thought that one of the most interesting and I think bad developments of politics lately is this sorting by college education versus no college education. And in this segment, I'm going to say educated. Don't be offended. I don't mean educated in general. When I say educated is a shorthand for college educated. But I'm talking about as the ideologies of the party sorted, so did who college-educated people vote for versus who non-college-educated people vote for. It wasn't always thus. And I do think that if you look at all societies, you know, post-aristocratic when then education was denied to the peasants, if you look at all pretty much modern societies, if you looked at the ones that followed the policy preferences of the educated versus the policy preferences of the uneducated, the educated would advocate for better policies in general. In general. Why? Why? Is it because they're so much smarter? I don't know. It's not exactly about intelligence. It's not exactly, it's not about character. You know, some people hearing this will say, just because you're college educated doesn't mean you're not an asshole or know anything. Absolutely true. But... The educated, the college educated, the educated happen to have more information. And I do think if you have more information and better information, you're going to make better choices and advocate for better policies. That's where I think we are now. The educated didn't want Brexit, the uneducated did. Brexit's a bad policy. And it's the same way with Scandinavian countries and all throughout the EU and in Japan. The educated people favor better policies for those countries than the uneducated. Now, here's back to the poll. The college educated, and remember, the college educated voted against Trump. The non-college educated voted for Trump. But in this poll, the college educated blamed Trump less than the college non-educated or the non-college educated if an educated people were saying it. But my point is, it is the one exception to the rule that all the blame of Trump was, was correlative to people and demographic groups who disliked Trump. The smarter you were, the less you blame Trump, even though the more you dislike Trump. Anyway, what I'm saying is it fits in with my thesis And as a college-educated person, I know that there's a psychological component at play. There's something called confirmation bias, but I still think it's very true. College-educated folks who are Trump blamers in general do not blame him on this specific. Why? Because they're educated on the matter, and they happen to be right. And now, remembrances of things Trump. In 2019, Donald Trump gave a speech in Grand Rapids on lakes, Not just any lakes, the kind of lakes Donald Trump loves. Tremendous lakes, powerful lakes, the best lakes. In fact, the Great Lakes. So some background before wading in. The Cleveland Plain dealer reported about the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. At the time, since entering the White House, all the yearly budgets that Trump has presented to Congress suggested cuts to the program, but Congress has overruled Trump by giving the program $300 million each year. Over the past two years, this was in 2019, Trump proposed a 90% budget cut to the program. Still, so here we are. It's 2019, and Trump decides to play geologist, lakeologist, or deepness expert, which is known in the industry as a depth spurt. He said this. I support the Great Lakes. Always have They're beautiful, they're big,
2: very deep, record deepness, right? And I'm going to get, in honor of my friends,
1: full funding of $300 million for the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. So what happened? Guess what? Not every remembrance is a remembrance of a lie. The Great Lakes Initiative did go from 300 million a year to 320 that year. Wow. Maybe Trump no longer threatening to eliminate the fund entirely helped increase funding for it. What didn't help? This buyoff to the Great Lake states, it was not successful because in 2016 the Trump campaign went 5 and 3 in states that have a coastline made up at least partially of a Great Lake. In 2020, they went 6 and 2, Ohio and Indiana being the exceptions. Those Great Lake losses alone would have been enough. To lose him the election. And this has been a remembrance of things Trump. On the show today, I spiel about proof through accusation. But first, the Slate Political Gap Fest has been going strong for 15 years now through pandas and cocktails and seven secretaries of state, 12 official or acting small business administrators, and staff cumulative job changes 10 times, I counted. I believe one thing has been constant, and that is John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and David Plotz getting together to host the best political talk show out there. Why do they do it, you ask? Clearly to get invited and reflect in this forum. The Slate Political Gap Fest's 15th anniversary up next. Still looking for the perfect holiday gift? Everything is 30% off at the Slate Shop now through the holidays. Maybe you're a Gabfest fan, a slow burn fan, a pretty devotee, devotee, prude. Maybe you're a gist diehard, or maybe you and your family just support loving a news organization via clothing. Visit shop.slate.com with discounts automatically apply to checkout. The Slate Political Gab Fest is, of course, a Swiss puppet-inspired dance performance that answers the question: what would Jim Henson be if he did more meth and less acid? Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking of Moominchance. The Slate Political Gabfest is the quintessential, needs-no introduction entity, so I won't give it one. I'll just note that it's been on for 15 years with John, David, and Emily. Okay, fine. Dickerson, plots Bazelon. Maybe they needed a full introduction. Guys, congratulations, and thanks for coming on The Gist. Thanks, Mike.
3: Thank you. Thank you. We're so glad to be here. We look forward to your quinceanero, Mike ha.
1: <laughs> so what? I have the dress picked out. So what I was doing was going over 15 years of shows, and uh, they're very hard to find the early ones, but I wanted to probe a couple areas. One is, what are the either the issues or maybe the general stances life? outlooks that you think you've changed the most on. Does anything come to mind? I have a couple of actual issues you talked about and I wonder if you would have those views now. But anyone want to volunteer one?
0: I'll volunteer one because we we revealed it, we, it was revealed in bloody uh color last night on our live show celebrating the 15th anniversary, which was um I was wrong about the police and like how the stance towards the police and I made Fun. I attempted to make fun of Emily for her position that you shouldn't call the police for minor, uh, minor affairs that involve the welfare of children and young people especially and black people. especially black people. And yeah, I think I was incredibly naive and and events have borne out that Emily was absolutely right. And I, I, uh, I'm embarrassed by how naive I was about that.
1: This was, I think, in a segment about a woman who left her kid in a park while she did a job interview with McDonald's. I, re- I recall that and I was going yes. to bring it up. That's it. Right.
2: And it was the the debate was over what your basic starting premise should be about the police. I mean, that was that. Was, sorry, that wasn't what the debate was about. I guess it was ultimately what the debate was about. But that was the revelation was was what one's starting operating procedure should be when one thinks about the police.
1: Yeah. I'll throw another one out there. You debated renaming the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. And I wonder if you'd have different positions, if you remember your positions then and if you'd have different ones now.
3: I think I was against renaming the Woodrow Wilson School because I thought that even though Wilson was racist and showed the birth of the nation at the White House and decimated, um, if I recall correctly, the Postal Service in a way that hurt a lot of black workers Mm -hmm. at the time, I think I argue that that isn't his primary legacy and that it's okay to keep that name because he had other accomplishments as president, like he started the League of Nations, which turned into the U.N. Is that what I said, Mike?
1: Yeah, that's pretty much it. So now, same? (laughs) Now, you
3: know, I was really surprised when Princeton changed the name for those reasons I just gave. And I still sort of like the test that it should be the whole gestalt of your Mm -hmm. professional career. But I do, I think understand more the hurt from these kind of past, uh, bigoted racist figures. And I also am not someone who really cares about whether we keep names or rename them. So like, sure, rename the Woodrow Wilson Center.
0: I, am, I'm sure I was on the same position as Emily at the time. And actually, I think I still hold that position as well, even though I live in Washington, D.C. and the high school that, in fact, the high school that my Son may attend is named at the moment Woodrow Wilson, but they're going to rename it. And I think it's absolutely right to rename a high school in Washington D.C. that's named after Woodrow Wilson and to remove his name because he was a he was a disaster for Washington and particularly for Black Washington. And he was a he was his relationship to the city does not merit uh, protection at all, and it should be he should be condemned. But I think the idea that the Woodrow Wilson School he was president of Princeton University. And he was an internationalist and an international statesman of profound importance. And it's bizarre to me that the fact that he was also a deeply flawed racist person should mean that his name cannot be on anything at that school is seems weird to me even though of course it's a, there's terrible hurt yes and 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 i and i also acknowledge like i that hurt is not felt by me directly and so it's easy for me to say that but but i, I think it's weird that because we're going to end up with, so with, end up a, with lot a lot of stuff, stuff getting changed, I know. Getting changed oh, right. and
2: i'm and sure i was
3: I'm not sure that point of view sorry John. i'm
0: sure i was in the,
2: where where you two were but i am more you know what uh, uh, the standard for assessment is different than the standard for what we revere and it seems like the the complete assessment that emily you were arguing for and that you know my favorite frederick Douglass um explanation of lincoln is one of my favorite ways of thinking about presidents all flawed um and keeping their flaws in the right perspective but but naming is different i, I think you can be harsher when you name and when and and i'm with emily you take the name off and
1: you put a new name on there mm, I, okay so this is great because it's not life and death it's a statement it's in in fact, it's somewhat symbolic, but let's examine why why you each changed, or maybe there are different reasons. You could say, you know, I just got more sensitized to how much hurt it caused i th- I would say that's probably the most high minded uh, reason to change, and people and if you did change, people would fault you least for that, but I also think maybe there's there was less friction then. Whenever we ha- you had that discussion, maybe six years ago, that it was more easily articulated that Emily's original position, this isn't all of his legacy. And, you know, we should have some honorings of even a man who is bad in other ways. There are more costs to holding that original position now. You could even say, you know, politically, it's part of a, uh, you, you guys aren't politicians, but there's part of a coalition of mostly the left, and this is the sort of plank that you kind of have to have now, but you didn't have then. So let's do a little self-examination. Why did you change on this position, do you think?
2: I'm going to just jump in quickly and say, I've, I, part of mine, some of it's part of what you describe, but also you re- recognize the dumb power of statues and buildings to be used in contemporary debates, and to give a kind of power and and legitimacy to contemporary debates that are wrong. And so you want to remove the dumb power of statues that we revere to be used in the service of an argument that is uh, without merit. Mm.
3: I mean, Mike, I totally hear you. And I feel like you're talking about the sort of like, creep of overwokeness in which symbolism starts to carry us too much weight and we pay too much attention to like twitter and language policing and stop thinking about more material gains for you know addressing inequality and poverty etc I think that's all real. This isn't the hill that I would particularly choose to die on because I just don't really care about renaming. But there are other kinds of language policing um, that I am getting increasingly cranky about.
0: Mm. I, well, I haven't changed, so I guess I have no place in this conversation. <laughs> but I, I just feel like that the, that I understand the the cost, which is the pain that people feel. But I also like when you, when you take someone's name off of thing or you take a statue, you it's a forgetting too. It's a forgetting the fullness of that well, person. Well, you
3: can put up a plaque in which you remember the history of why it was named after them, right? Like, that's actually very important to me and something that only sometimes happens.
1: Well, And you then can if also you take down the plaque, you could put up maybe a little small trophy to recognize <laughs> the plaque. And then afterwards, <laughs> there's <no>. a hyperlink.
2: <laughs> but there's no danger of forgetting in the history class or in the school. That,
0: it, that is not true. Of course, there is when you, you, you when you when you, when when the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton is no longer named after Woodrow Wilson, like the students who are taught there, the emphasis on internationalism and the emphasis on like what why are we named after Woodrow Wilson vanishes, and so that the history the legacy which they're trying to honor, which is an internationalist globalist uh, legacy, is weakened, and that may be right that may be you know maybe that 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 the school doesn't want to focus on that as much, but I think like, you're kidding yourself if you think it doesn't, there's not something lost when you take someone's no, 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 name no, no. off of that wasn't of my
2: argument. My argument was that they don't teach it, and they're going to teach it in class. They'll have a fuller, I mean, they're going to, it's not like Woodrow Wilson's being written out of history class. It's not like there's no venue to learn about Woodrow Wilson. And the chances that anybody learns about the complexity of Woodrow Wilson from the naming of a building are less than the chances are that somebody will be offended by the elevation of somebody who had repugnant ideas.
3: And you could pick someone who has that same sort of internationalist legacy from a different vantage point and then to the degree that the name continues with that kind of informing of the public, it
1: persists. So this is interesting because I wanted to I wanted to use this as a, a test case or an example for your dynamic. And it's beautiful. It, it's it shows it essentially because what you three people are are three people who clearly enjoy each other's company and want to hear each other's thoughts, but also don't agree with each other, all the time coming in, and I listen to. I don't know if you guys listen to other shows of your ilk that you that you pioneered. Although I'm sure someone put three people together and asked them to talk more than 15 years ago. But I <laughs> no, just no 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 yeah. we have a
3: copyright on that. Like, Absolutely, <laughs> yes. our thing. Birth, nobody
1: else. Birth of the ilk. <laughs> we but get I a just...
3: licensing fee every time three people talk. <laughs>
1: I do think every show out there is either three people agreeing with each other, which can be fine and, and edifying, but often isn't, or a bunch of disagreement, but of people who just want to make their points, score, and move on. And it's just a little different with you three. I'm sure you've thought about it and talked about this dynamic, but do you think that's fundamental to the appeal?
3: Yes, I like that. Let's turn that into a tagline. I don't know what exactly. But
0: Emily, why don't you... I mean, I think you have the biggest riff on this, which is that it's about the sense of trust that we have among each other. I mean, there's a love and trust, but I've said this in your stead, but I feel it's your insight.
3: (laughs) I agree with that insight of mine. I mean, I... I used – when people used to start – when people start podcasts and they would come to me and say, like, how do you make it work? I used to say, like, oh, it's just serendipity. Oh, like, just talk. It'll be fine. Then I realized that that was not – that I was actually giving us short shrift and that I was taking for granted – all the love and trust that we had built up over the years, I continue to think that it's essential that nobody listened to the show for such a long time and it didn't matter that we started a podcast at a time where, like, a podcast was just this, like, weird word. And so we were able to just not take it seriously, not worry that we were performing because nobody was listening. I mean, you know, Mike, we used to work together in the D.C. office and we didn't really eat lunch together, but we used to walk to buy lunch together a lot. And the Gab Fest was just like a continuation of those conversations.
2: You know, our former colleague, John Swansberg was um, asked by one of his children w- uh, what he did all day, and he basically came down to explaining it as solving puzzles with friends, which is how he <laughs> described editing, which to me is exactly right. And when it works well, and that's kind of what I feel like we do, um, even if we don't get to a solution. Um, <laughs> Ever. Yeah, it's um, it's that. And, 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 um, Anyway, that just popped in my head.
0: Yeah, and I I mean, just to to add to the obvious excellent points that those guys just made, it allows us, the, the love and trust piece allows us to say things that are riskier and maybe more stupid and braver, not brave, like in some fundamental way, but brave in the context of conversation, knowing that, you know, John's not going to take advantage of that, you know, a week later to undermine me, or John's not going to go tweet about it to, you know, to to make me seem like a fool, even though what I said might have been deeply foolish. And that, that it has allowed us to, to kind of be um, more honest, I think, with each other and thus with our audience than a lot of people are, able to be and also it's perform it's like definitely performative i'm not quite the person that i am on the gab fest it's a lot less performative i think than a lot of other things that people do i think like we are yeah, i yeah, totally I, agree
2: I, I got a seize on that because it just occurred to me that what the, what you're describing david allows i, I had this, re- this this experience recently if you in the public square which sometimes means twitter if you write something that seems unassailable um <laughs> you will find that people will take it the wrong way. And it will to be the, assailed. Yes, it will be assailed. And I recently made a case for, for for journalism explaining why people were having issues with Lloyd Austin being nominated as Biden's Secretary of Defense, saying basically there's a big debate and people should explain what the debate is about so people don't just think it's a bunch of fuss. You know, basically the, the dumbest, oldest argument, which is, you know, more signal, less noise. And- yeah. And, like, and many people didn't understand what I was saying. If you go in a world where you feel hunted like that, where the simplest propositions can be misunderstood, it clamps down on your thinking. It makes life a hunched problem. And what we mostly are able to do is return to a kind of much more creative, noodling, but full of passion and enthusiasm. And it's just a much more pleasant way to think through difficult issues.
1: Right. And if you're operating in an ecosystem where you get the most huzzas for maximally stating your side's position, it's going to be very uninteresting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that really sets shows why podcasts in general are great. It allows for a better conversation. But why this podcast is great, I think it's because you guys really like each other and you have that love and trust. So how do other groups get that? There are a lot of podcasts where the the people who are talking to each other love each other, but they also don't disagree as much. And I have to go back to the fact that it started as an outgrowth of a work workplace but one of the the ethos of that workplace was let's have a bunch of people who disagree and not only is that all right that's what we're going to cultivate and I think that there are many many fewer uh, journalism workplaces with that ethos today so it would be harder to form the group of three people who are walking to lunch who are actually ideologically divided your thoughts on that
3: I think you're right, Mike, and I fear it because for young people coming up to be in a workplace where there's lots and lots of room to be foolish, to make mistakes, to disagree, to fight and argue about ideas seems really crucial to me. And I do worry talking to some of my students um, who I teach and also to younger journalists coming up that there is... Sometimes I think it's a narrower set of kind of acceptable positions to hold. And sometimes I think it's just a different set of positions to hold and that like I'm being old and like I said before, cranky about this. But I really treasure the way that Slate encouraged that kind of fracas among us. But I think it is absolutely something that places of journalism should try really hard to cultivate. And I'm not sure exactly how much that's happening at this point.
2: And also a sidecar to that was the encouragement, sometimes to the point of self parody, but the of slate pitch. Of the slate pitch, right. Of and not and not, not the slate pitch all the way to to getting to the end of the story, but at least to think through the most contrary view, if for no other reason than to support the underlying view. But to just build that into your reflexive reaction to things, which is a nice antidote to what most of us particularly who cover politics, you know, there's a lot of pull of the kind of conventional wisdom and making it an instinct to push against that conventional wisdom in a clever way, in a way that can be argued, in a way that can be supported, I think is also part of what
1: we all sort of came to from Slate. Yeah. So I've been going over the archives, and a couple things strike me. One is, this won't be surprising, but just to experience it on the granular level, the things that were top of mind and and important— They really were important in 2007 or 2009 or 2014 seem ridiculous and not because things have gotten so much dire in the world, though that's happened, just the course and march of politics and history. I was listening to a segment on Scott McClellan's memoir and I really had to probe myself. I'm someone who covers politics every day. Wait, remind me of who Scott McClellan was? And I wonder yeah. if you think is that something when I said it? Did you guys all know uh, immediately? Oh, yeah. Bush well, spokesman. I mean, yeah. Bush spokesperson.
2: Yeah. Bush's yeah, yeah. press secretary. I, but, right. But you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. Also, I should very hate quickly hasten to add that that mindset in Slate, I was the most and still am the most sluggish to adopt that. Um, so I didn't want to like overly praise us in equal measure. I think David and Emily have them are better at that, but. The McClellan thing was interesting because it was a situation in which you had a press secretary deviate from the party line, from the line of his administration, which now we have seen where the press secretary's office has gone under under President Trump, in which the maintenance of lies is what's going on now. And McClellan left because he said, I was asked to lie from the podium. I mean, so it was a minor <laughs> thing at the time, but it's actually historically quite important.
1: Poignant. Yeah.
0: No memory of that at all. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> That's awesome,
1: John. You're the uh, you're the historian of the group. You could pick a 15 year period in American history where more would have changed, right? If there was uh, the technology to have a gab fest in 1859, certainly. Yeah. But I do think in <laughs> our I do think in our lifetime, I don't know that you'd find a bigger contrast between the the concerns of the pre-Trump era and the concerns upon leaving the era and the assumptions about how American politics work and what American politics mean. Or let's take a step back. We're still in the Trump era and maybe my perspective is skewed. What do you think?
2: I think, well, I think you're right in the moment, the very moment we're at now because all kinds of norms are up for grabs. We just talked about on the show what norms that have been shredded you would keep shredded and which ones you restore. There's much more in that second basket, but you could imagine Mike as, which I think is implicit in your question, five years from now, looking back and saying, Man, those were some crazy three years, but essentially there was a reverse. This is is a term I use all the time and and I only have the faintest grasp on, but there was a reversion to the mean, that these norms kicked back in again, that the basically normal operation kind of went back and therefore this was a crazy cul-de-sac, but it wasn't as huge as it feels right now because it feels right now everything is up for grabs and you have to fight for first principles on things that used to be a given.
1: Yeah. Emily Bazelon, David Plotz, and John Dickerson were and are the best political talk show in history and continue to be. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Mike. Thanks,
0: Mike.
3: Thanks for having us.
1: And now the spiel. I'd like to highlight a tactic of the Trump election, de-election efforts that is common, common, even beyond this particular instance of disinformation. I call it proof through accusation. Take the ridiculous lawsuit from Texas asking to overturn election results in states that aren't Texas. Last night on Fox's Sean Hannity show, Hannity found great significance in the fact that Texas was joined by six Republican attorney generals from states that also aren't Texas, but quite crucially, aren't the states whose elections they want overturned. Here is Hannity speaking of these electoral looky-loos.
2: 17. Attorneys generals are not going to put their reputations on the line on any case without real significant legal merit. And that is not on solid constitutional grounds. You now, these six attorneys general are not going to waste their valuable time, their limited
1: resources to sue other states without a legitimate cause and case. Simply by agreeing with Texas's accusation, just the mere agreement, these attorney generals are offering powerful evidence that Texas got it right. It is proof. Through accusation. And because this was Hannity talking of the power of a of an attorney general agreeing with something, I reminded myself of Rudy Giuliani talking about the power of an accuser. An accuser who actually he said, I, I I'm gonna bring forward, but she won't be allowed on Hannity. Do you remember him speaking this way? Now Melissa Carone, Melissa Carone, who is an American citizen. And who has uh, filed an affidavit under oath, under penalties of perjury. So that woman, Melissa Carone, did sign an affidavit. She swore that it happened. The accusation, therefore, edged closer to proof. And when Melissa Carone herself testified before Michigan State lawmakers, guess what tactic she used? Proof through accusation. And I signed something saying that if I'm wrong, I can go to prison. Did you? Because I'm making the accusation. It edges closer to proof. I signed it after all. No one ever lies while making an accusation. It is very rare for someone to put their name on something and be lying. Therefore, you must believe me when I tell you these tens of thousands of voters who signed their names to the election rolls were lying. There's this old phrase about When the law is on your side, pound the law. When the facts are on your side, pound the facts. When neither is on your side, pound the table. It's one of those expressions, the first time you hear it, oh, it seems kind of clever, but it clogs up cable news discussions because it takes so long to articulate. Anyway, I bring it up now, even knowing of its viscous rhetorical properties, because proof through accusation is saying something like, well, first pound the facts, then pound the law, then pound the table, even though you must know that by pounding the table, that alone is quite a significant action. How meaningful it is that I am engaging in table pounding. You know, not everyone has a table. Do you? It takes time and attention for me to pound a table. The very act of contracting my hands into fists. I mean, you got the flexor pollicis longus of the forearm, the flexor pollicis brevis of the thumb, not to mention the hypothenar muscles on the medial side of the palm. You need to... Be careful and consider the import and significance of my pounding the table just as it takes a whole amount of time and attention to book the Four Seasons, really any kind of Four Seasons in the Philadelphia area, and also to apply hair tonic, to say nothing of hours of hours of research on the Kraken, I studied the classics, you don't just do that without there being a really compelling and deeply truthful reason. So take as evidence the fact that I am asserting that this is evidence. Yes, 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 you're right. The specifics of that argument are ridiculous, also horrendous. The nature of the argument is ridiculous. The fact that this argument is being made and listened to by anyone, all those attorney generals, it's disturbing and ridiculous. All this ridiculousness is clearly why I'm ridiculing it. But this very poor type of argument will live far beyond its deployment in this specific case. So I recommend you watch out for it, not succumb to it, and especially don't ever make it yourself. Because remember, only a very serious person, who cleared a high bar of gravitas, would choose not to make such a clearly ridiculous argument over and over again. Such a person, by dint of their judgment, must be trusted. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader, just producer, 15 years ago, just a young boy on the threshold of getting his driver's license, taking his SATs, and watching the season's top-rated TV show, Desperate Housewives, thinking... This is spicy, but I long for some housewife content that is more, I don't know, real. Margaret Kelly produces The Gist. Fifteen years ago, she predicted a smart little TV comedy about office workers in Scranton, Pennsylvania, would be appreciated for a few seasons, then quickly forgotten. Oh, how wrong she was because she was talking about the show It's Scranton. Lasted for one season on the WB. 15 years ago, Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was working as an editor for an NPR show, having to deal with a pain-in-the-ass reporter out of New York who filed scripts that were hard to decipher, and tracks which included a hard-to-penetrate New York accent. You thought it might be Ira Flato. That reporter was me. That just speaking of me, 15 years ago, Batman had just begun, the Sith had gotten their revenge, and a young, well, 34-year-old Mike Pesca had just begun listening to podcasts. Wow. You can listen to Fresh Air or The Sound of Young America wherever you are, plus BBC film reviews. And I said and pitched this to my bosses what if I recorded a three hour interview about like pot and MMA and conspiracy theories and sensory deprivation chambers? Or, or I got another one, me and a friend got together and we bitchily dished about famous murders that we read on Wikipedia. I prefer to think of myself as a visionary. My employer at the time considered me, what was the word? Ah, uh, yes, suspended without pay pending review. And thanks for listening.